Hello and welcome back to another episode of the China Path podcast. This is James Scullin from the Australia China Business Council. On this episode, the third and final part of our market entry mini series, we discuss how businesses can ensure long-term success by committing to the market in China. I'm once again joined by China product expert Matthew McKenzie as we discuss market presence, hiring staff, registering your company, payment, staying up to date with changing regulations. Organic certification, new retail, digital marketing, some Australian success stories, and the importance of timing in China. Matthew has over 20 years' experience working in China with iconic Australian brands such as Tim Tam, Wheat Bix, and Morning Fresh. In 2014, he co-founded the Export Group, which he led in China until earlier this year, before relocating to Hong Kong, where he's now the general manager, Marketing Asia for Bright Food Asia. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Welcome back to our mini series on market entry strategies. I'm here with、uh, Matthew McKenzie from Bright Foods Asia. Matt, how regularly does a business need to be in China? So, if a company has set up an e-commerce channel, or if a company has perhaps met、um, a buyer and is now retailing in a few supermarkets around China, how how important is it to maintain that market presence? Look, I think.、Um You know, you want to be you want to be on the ground in China as, as as often as you can, but at the same time, if your business is 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 still quite small, you, you've got to manage it within the resources that you have available to you. I guess you know, reminds me of when I first started my export、um, career many years ago, and my boss said to me, "If you want to do business in a market, you need to travel to that market.、Mm. If you want to continue to do business in that market, you need to continue to do business in the, in that market.、Oh, you need to continue to travel to that market, rather."、Um, so what I would say is. As often as as often as you can be,、um, but again, it depends on the size of the size of your business.、Mm. I would also say that you really want to be、um, behaving for the business that you believe you can have in China. So even if your business is small this year and next year, if year three and year four you believe that it can be quite a significant business, then you really need to be behaving in a way. Um, you know, you really need to be behaving like you're already that larger business. You almost dress for that job that you want, not the job that you have.、Mm. Uh, and I think that that, you know, as I've built a couple of brands in China, for example, we had much larger trade show presence than what we actually should have had at that period of time.、Mm. But it, it made the brand look a lot more committed, made the brand look a lot larger than it was, and we attract a lot more attention and, and got a lot more traction、mm. um, by doing that. So. I think in the same vein, if if you're in China more regularly, or if you find someone to put on the ground in China、um, to represent your brand on an ongoing basis, that can be quite you know quite a good investment.、Mm. Um, so, what about actually setting up an office in China? Is the first stage of that potentially maybe just hiring a local person that that works independently that you have a relationship with who's representing the brand in China, or does that actually mean that you're moving your 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 business to China? Well, I think I think they're two they're two very distinct things. So, let's let's talk about hiring someone on on the ground first and foremost. So, I think you know there are, again advantages and disadvantages to that.、Um, the advantage is that it's relatively low cost, relatively quick if you can find the right person. The disadvantage is not having oversight of them on a regular basis, and and then the risk that at some point in time. They can they can go off and do something else, or you know you can't actually monitor their behaviour day in day out. So,、mm. 
you know, there are some risks and advantage, uh, disadvantages, risks to be aware of them. It needs to be noted that if you're setting up a company in China, um, so you want to set up an office, you need to register a company, that process can be quite time-consuming. Mm. Um, you probably need to allow six months. Mm. Um, setting up bank accounts, um, setting up registrations, making sure the right licences, there's a lot involved in that. So for smaller companies, you probably really want to be looking at... at trying to lean on the resources of a local partner such as a distributor, mm. an importer, mm. uh, you know, a consulting firm that's sort of in that space um, that have the registrations in place, have the relationships in place, have the team in place that they can then manage on your behalf. Yeah. That's probably a more viable method to, to consider in the, in the opening phases. But as your business grows... Um, and as a lot of Australian companies have done over the years, they then graduate to establishing their own office and their own team and, and go through the expense and the compl- complexity of, of registering. Yeah, so, so what are the advantages of having boots on the ground in China for a company that does set up an office in China and, and, and send Australian staff over? Oh, I think it's dis- you know, there's a distinct advantage in terms of you know, showing a real commitment to the market, mm. having a real finger on the pulse. I mean, the only constant in, chi- in China is change. Um, it's funny, you know, as, as, as China continues to evolve, you sort of think that, well, it's going to have to plateau out at some point in time in terms of, of change, but it just doesn't... The pace of change seems to increase, if, if, if anything. And, and I think you want to be Johnny on the spot in terms of seizing opportunities. Mm. Um, and, and the only way to, to really be able to make sure that you're seizing as many of those opportunities as possible is to be on the ground and creating those relationships and being there to supply your product in where some other company may have let let um, let somebody down in China. Yeah. If, if you're there and you've got boots on the ground, well, you're going to be abreast of those opportunities. You're going to be abreast of all the changes that are happening in the marketplace, and you're going to be on top of on top of the opportunities for your business. Okay. What are some of the challenges around getting paid in China um, that make China stand out as a different market to to Australia or or another foreign market? Um, a company may be doing business. Sure. In. A business transaction and business negotiation is never completed until you've got cleared funds in your bank account. Mm. Um, now, in, in a Western context, typically if you go into a contractual arrangement, you know, you do a lot of negotiation up front and once the, once the, once the contract is signed and, and sealed, both sides um, have pretty fair expectation on, on what they are to do and what they are to receive. Mm. And generally, provided both meet their expectations, generally the transaction goes through and there's, there's no issues. Now, that, that can happen in China as well. Mm. Um, but in many instances, um, and it's not unique to China, but payment and speed of payment um, it really depends on the leverage of the parties and the leverage of the leverage that they have on the transaction. So right. I think that particularly when you're starting off an, a new relationship, you want to be getting at least part payment, if not full payment up front before, before you actually uh, enter into sending any products to, to partners for the, for the first few transactions. Okay, and, right. You know, Chinese companies, to be, to be fair, are quite used to that. Yeah, uh, behavior even within within you know Chinese company to Chinese company that that's quite that's a very common very common practice. Yeah, I would also say that if if a company says to you, look, I'd like to transact through Hong Kong, don't be alarmed at that. The foreign currency control laws and legislation out of China can be quite tight. So yeah. getting getting large amounts of money out of China can be a real a real challenge. Yeah. And so that it's it's not uncommon for companies to have companies that they own in Hong Kong as sort of inter- intermediary trading uh, entities, and the reason they do that is just for smoother transactions uh, with the West. 
um, or with countries from all over the world. I would say that um, US dollars are probably a more uh, common currency okay. for, for people to transact in. And more so we're seeing RMB trading uh, right. now with, you know, and if you're prepared to, if you're prepared to trade in RMB, um, you know, that'll be quite warmly received by, mm. by Chinese companies. Australian dollars are not, you know, obviously some people do trade in it, and yep. particularly Chinese companies that have entities here in Australia, um, they'd be quite open to that. But typically you're looking at using your more international currencies um, okay. for, for trading with um, Chinese companies. And, and, and what about setting up a Chinese bank account? Is, is, is that essential? Uh, no, it's not essential. Um, I mean, if you if you do set up your own business on the ground in China, it will be essential. Yeah. Because uh, you'll need that to pay staff and to pay taxes and to to transact product, etc. Yeah. Um, but if if you're working on an export model uh, from Australia and, and you somehow put someone on the ground in China to help pull the product through, then you don't need to set up bank accounts. And the okay. only way for a business to set up a bank account is to have a registered company in China, which goes back to that earlier point that we were talking about, which is quite a quite a, an elongated process to set up a business in China. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, all right, well, Matt, you probably know better than anyone that Chinese regulations and customs can, can change often. Um, how can a business keep on top of these changes and, and, and market fluctuations? Well, that's, that's a really good question. And to be honest, if I had the answer to... If I had the crystal ball to know what the changes would be coming down the, the pipeline, it'd be very helpful. Look, I think, uh, as I said earlier, the only constant in China is change. Yeah. Um, what, what we find is that a lot of changes, a lot of, shall we say, changes that get have received big publicity over the years quite often are not enforced. Um, so it's it, really the best way to keep abreast of all the changes, and it touches on earlier points, would be to, to maintain those relationships with the trade organisations and, and people that are on the ground in the market. Right. Plus, yep. if you've got a good importer, distributor, partner on the ground in China, they'll be on top of those changes as well. Um, a lot of, I think probably one of the best ways to maintain flexibility for food and beverage brands um, entering the Chinese market is not to actually go out and print Chinese packaging okay. um, for, the, for the market. Now, there are a couple of reasons for that. Mm. F- firstly, um, consumers... They, they want to see the white label on the packaging, which actually then shows it is an imported product. Okay. So there's that little tick in the consumer's mind. But secondly, you may end up doing it to save cost, but actually it creates cost in the long run because if you've, got, if you've had to print 18 months' worth of packaging, but then the regulations change during that period of time for which you've got no foresight of, yeah. you still need to go through the stickering and labelling process to actually label over the incorrect parts of the, the packaging and you need to have stickers that can't be taken off and etc. So it actually creates more headaches sometimes. Oh, than, right. you, you know, a lot, of, a lot of companies have in good faith created packaging for the market. Yeah. Um, but in actual fact, it, it makes them less flexible, not necessarily as attractive to the consumer. So I think that that's one way of definitely dealing with, with that sort of ambiguity. Mm. What, what about something like um, or, organic certification? Does, does a brand need to have Chinese-recognised organic certification or can a company work off its Australian organic certification and, and, and that still um, expresses the same benefit to the consumer? To be recognised in China and to be able to be legally imported through CIQ, the China Inspection and Quarantine Service, which is the equivalent of our AQUIS um, body, you must be recognised by the uh, authorities, the organic authorities in China. Okay. Um, and that's quite a process 
in and of itself. Yeah. Um, however, to, to make things even a little bit less clear, if you're selling through the cross-border e-commerce sites, yeah. you know, your Timor Globals, your JD Internationals and the like, where transaction actually takes place outside of China, although the product is shipped into China yep. uh, to, to a consumer directly, you don't necessarily need to have... You, you can sell it as an organic product and don't necessarily need to have the Chinese certification. So for a product to go into bricks and mortar as an organic product into China, it needs to be recognised by the Chinese authorities. So, so, so just to enter the country... As an organic product. Yes. Okay. But 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 what about on the shelf? Could you could you send a product to China, not as an organic product, but then you have your Australian organic certified label? Are, are, are consumers discerning enough to be able to understand that maybe the product is organic, but it just hasn't been registered by the Chinese organic certification authorities? Yeah, I think at the consumer level, consumers probably aren't that cognizant of the the. I guess the different bodies necessarily. Okay. I think there'll be some extreme consumers, absolutely that, that are highly knowledgeable. But as a general rule, yeah, um, I don't think they would be so knowledgeable of that. Um, in terms of, you know, I've seen product on shelf, say from the United States, for example, that that is a brand that they only produce organic mm. products and yeah. pasta sauce, for example. Yeah. And I've seen where they've actually had to sticky tape or put special tape over the section that says organic. Um, now I just can't remember whether they have the organic, they will have the organic, the American organic seal on there somewhere. Mm. I just can't recall whether they had that covered or not. But, okay. Um, but definitely had the word organic uh, covered over for because they they hadn't been certified by the Chinese authorities. And so for those companies that do go through the quite laborious process of achieving that Chinese um, organic certification, um, have the rewards been great for them? Has that has that actually been a positive um, commercial experience for them achieving that? Chinese organic certification? Look, I, I think, again, um, without trying to sound like I'm not answering the question, <laughs> um, I think in some instances it's been it's been great. Yep. In other instances, maybe not so successful. Okay. So I think that the important thing is that for companies that have a brand recognition, it's more likely to be successful for them um, rather than companies that have gone through a whole lot of expense but haven't actually built their brand yet mm. uh, and then they're selling at sort of a super premium price mm. um, but haven't haven't actually sold the benefits down the line. I think that that might be quite challenging for right. them. Right. Um, and, and so lastly on that organic question, is the process that you need to fly over someone from that authority to Australia to um, you know, go to your factory, go to your farm and, and essentially conduct a study of that product to achieve that certification? Is that generally the process? Yeah, and they review the supply chain and they review... So say, for example, if you've got a product, a food product that's got a lot of different inputs into it, then they've got to go through and um, check all of those inputs and check the documentation behind that, check the process at the factory. So it's quite... Okay. It, is, it is a very detailed uh, and involved process. Right, okay. Um, Not for the faint-hearted. Yeah. Um, now, a lot of people, Matt, are talking about new retail, yep. um, you know, thinking about how the Chinese supermarket and retail experience is becoming ever more digitalized. Yep. Um, how, what is new retail and how is it changing the shopping behavior of well, Chinese consumers? I think probably the most famous example of this is Herma, okay. uh, which uh, comes from our friend at Ali, friends at Alibaba, uh, who have been on the forefront of a lot of innovation over the last few years in China. And... You know the great thing about Hermar is, yes, it's it's a tradition, it's a supermarket in the traditional sense, or it's it's a store in the traditional sense, but it's completely digital. Mm. So the cash cash doesn't exist in the store. 
uh, everything is everything is paid for via the Alipay uh, app. Mm. Um, you can not only buy, for example, fresh produce and, and meats, etc. here, but you can also arrange to have them cooked for you and then delivered by robot to you at... Uh, yeah, so it's quite experiential. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. It's quite experiential for uh, for consumers. And, you know, the, the, there's just a lot of theatre in store. So yeah. I think um, it, it's a really interesting, you know, a really interesting way for brands to be able to interact with Chinese consumers. And, and it's almost taking, it's almost like the whole world up there has gone uh, full circle in terms of we've gone from traditional retail to then, you know, a lot of e-commerce to now bringing theatre back into store, but it's also digitally Right. Uh, engaged it's it's yeah it's sort of this fascinating cluster of of all of these things colliding okay and 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 so where do you see these herma stores are they just on the east coast are they just in shanghai or are you kind of seeing them all around no China no they're, they're 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 obviously bigger in the in the first tier cities but they uh the latest report that i heard was that there's a plan for over 2000 herma right. stores i think okay. by 2023 or 2025 so this this is going to be a significant business for for alibaba and um, and Herma's not the only not the only store in this in this in this race. So I think it's a really interesting space to watch. Yeah. Um, and due to the nature of, of the products that they're selling and the way that they're selling them, you know, they're selling at a premium price. So it's 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 really a perfect marketplace for premium Australian brands to be to be playing. So let's say, for example, if you're exporting Australian beef to China and you want to be involved in in, in the Herma supermarket, are you able to contact Alibaba and talk about? training for you know how to cook meat or how to pair meat is, is it quite collaborative the approach that herma offers businesses um to have that experience in store yeah look it, it absolutely can be um and i think that that really what you want to be looking for is 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 doing as much homework as you can before talking to herma or other retailers about about what what can be on offer and mm. and again this is where you know the market in China is so huge that it's. I think it's great to collaborate with other Australian brands, mm. um, where you can almost bring a package together, and whether that be a, a geographic package in terms of oh well, there's five producers from Tasmania that have put all their products together to create this meal, which can be pr- produced in the Hermar store on site for consumers, mm. or whether it be more of a generic okay, it's an Australian you know set of ingredients etc. Um, that that then come together in this in this theatre of retail mm. um, as, as we're starting to see. So, look, I, I think that it's uh, there's definitely ways of collaborating um, and the, the great thing with a lot of these stores are that they really want ideas and they mm. want people to come ahead. And, and this is where I think that Australian companies can get ahead mm. and where the closest that Australia's had in interacting with China over the years um, will really bring Australian companies to the forefront in terms of being able to embrace these opportunities. Mm, right. If a company has a fair sense of market penetration in China, how can what can they do in Australia to help boost their brand awareness in China? Um, so how essential is something like WeChat, for example, to maintaining a brand profile? Yeah, look, I think... Um I think there's, there's various ways. Obviously, WeChat is, is one way of, of building up a following and then interacting with that that group of consumers. But also events and live streaming, mm. uh, I think, are, are quite interesting. Um, and as we were discussing in terms of the Herma sort of creating experiences and, and creating a theatre, mm. um, I think that creating that theatre um, outside of the store as well is, is, is quite interesting. Um, I've noticed a number of Australian brands putting big billboards around major airports right. um, okay having flown in myself this morning 
um, and being quite sleepy as I walked through. I noticed them, but I didn't. I couldn't recall any of the brands. So I don't necessarily know that that's the best and wisest sort of spend of, of, of money, but definitely live streaming, but with interesting content. Yeah. Um, in, in, so, for example, you know, going out to, to the fields or going out to the, the pastures of Australia and, and really, you know, showing the environment, showing the history, showing the, the, what makes this product different and unique and why should people be buying it and really communicating that. Uh, I think that can be done quite cost-effectively and, and in, in a very interesting way for, for Chinese consumers. Do you, do you find that the Aussie businesses that do that tend to learn up on, on what those platforms are and, and how to work them or do they tend to you know maybe hire a, a Chinese-Australian or a Chinese student in Australia to kind of help navigate those platforms and, and essentially manage that because it, it, it can be quite complex to a business that you know has no experience at all as to what live streaming or WeChat is? Oh, look, absolutely. And I think that, again, there are various, various models where, um, you know, some, some Australian companies have been able to manage it themselves. Um, others employ, employ young Chinese Australians or, you know, Chinese students, et cetera, mm. um, that understand that environment a whole lot more in many instances. So, yeah, I think it's really – it really depends on where you are with your business evolution. So if you're at the front end where you're really just trying to grapple with this – you're probably best off to try to find, you know, some young Chinese Australians that, that are keen to help out mm. um, and and quite cost-effectively give you exposure to some of these, you know, some of these areas of opportunity. Yeah, and obviously that's a great experience for them looking to get some, you know, work experience yeah, in Australia. Yeah, absolutely, and it's a win-win situation. Yeah. It's a win-win situation. Okay, Matt, so we're coming to the end of our three-part mini-series on market entry strategies. Um, in your decades-long experience and history of living and working in China, what, what have been some of the Australian success stories that have achieved positive brand recognition in China? Well, look, I think there's, there's, there's quite a few. Um, you know, Australia has really punched above its weight, which, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of uh, for, our, for our country. And, and, you know, if I look at, at companies such as Penfolds, for example, mm. you know, in the red wine space, they, they've just done a brilliant job. Um, and... and you know, despite some negative press over the years, um, they've they've really done a great job at building that brand in China and, and building a very strong business. Mm. Um, Devondale and A2 Milk, um, you know, both those companies you see widely available. And in fact, the Devondale business is having their, you know, a lot of their packaging plagiarised by a lot of, you know, a lot of local companies now, which... Okay. Um, I think shows how successful and how recognisable their, their, their brand is. Right. Yeah. So it's, a, it's a compliment in, in a sense, IP, uh, uh, IP theft. <laughs> uh, well, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't call it IP theft, but yeah, definitely plagiarism okay. to, to a degree in terms of colours and, and how things look from a distance. Yep. And A2 Milk's just been, a, been an absolute juggernaut for, for a while now. Um, and I think the one that in, in many respects may, may trump them all is Swiss. You know, I okay. think that... Swiss over the last couple of years have become very sophisticated in terms of their, their social media, uh, their marketing, uh, their channel development. Um, they've been very aggressive and, and they've done a great job. And, you know, you, you really see their brand um, all, over, all over the Chinese cities that I travel to, um, all through the shopping malls. Uh, in fact, I noticed in Hong Kong the other day that, that they've got big advertising on the MTR and... You know, they're just doing a great job. So, mm. you know, I think Swiss has been a real powerhouse as well. 
And I guess the, the common denominator between all those companies is, is, is time. They've all invested significant time in the China market. Could, could you make a comment about, about how important time is when, when, when approaching the China market? Oh, look, absolutely. I, I think that they've all, I mean, they've all been in market for, for a long time. Um, I would also probably um, look at timing as well. Mm. So, you know, all of them got into the market and the timing was, was, was quite good. Um, when, they, when they were really ramping up their businesses. But time in market, resource in market, investment in market uh, for all these businesses has, has paid off. Mm. Um, and, and so, you know, I think if there's a model for success there, you know, sometimes it may seem a little bit unattainable for, for SME exporters, but over time you can certainly build a scale and, and sizable business provided you've got the right strategy, the right product um, and, and the, right, you know, the right execution. Mm. Excellent. Okay, well, Matt, it's been a pleasure picking your brain. We've discussed all different things from research to the Australian factor to legal issues, uh, different tiered cities, trade shows, e-commerce, uh, branding strategies, customs and regulations. Um, so thanks a lot for been fun, dropping by to the podcast. And um, although we should caution that, you know, we've really just scratched the surface and it, it is a complex market, China, and there's a lot of opportunity, but, you know, there's a lot of things that businesses do really need to consider before entering the market. Yeah, absolutely. And look, James, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for your time and um, hope to do it again someday. Mm, excellent. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. My thanks to Matthew for sharing his experience once again. And for more from our podcast, please drop by to the podcast homepage at acbc.com.au forward slash podcasts, where you can find show notes from all our previous episodes. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and help us to continue to grow our listenership. Thanks also to Austrade for their support of this exciting new series of the podcast. This activity received funding from Austrade as part of the Free Trade Agreement Market Entry Grant Program. The views expressed herein are not necessarily the views of the Commonwealth of Australia and the Commonwealth does not accept responsibility for any information or advice contained herein. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for listening and until next time, zai jian. <laughs>